Today's scripture reading is from the book of Hebrews, the fourth chapter, verses 9 through 11. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. May God bless the reading of his word. Better? There we go. Boom. There you go. That's what we get for having a good tech team in the back. That's awesome. Thank you, guys. Um, so let's restart that announcement. There's a prayer meeting coming up uh, this Saturday for Myla Harp. I would love for as many people to be there as possible. Um, I think the meeting starts at 7. Uh, we will put the announcement out on Facebook as well as out on the eGrace um, so that you can know what the address is and uh, how long it's going to last. So we'll give you more details. Um, today we're going to be looking at rest, and we'll be talking about specific applications about rest, but one of the things that I want to say before uh, before we get going into the sermon is, you know that the harps and the deaners are here today. One of the best, most restful things you can do for them is to walk up and give them a hug. You don't have to say anything. I'm sure it's preferred that you don't say anything, but a good hug and maybe a, just a sweet praying for you is a great restful thing, and it goes a long way. So in that light, let's pray. And uh, lift up this time to God. Father God, even as I stand here behind the pulpit, I am struggling with unrest. Father, there are things in life, there are things in uh, just things that have to be done. Lord, the hours were not enough this week to get everything done. The daylight hours are not enough to think about all the needs Father, the worries of friends, Father, the burdens of others, God, they weigh heavy. And yet, Father, you offer us rest at every moment of the day. So, Father, now as we turn to Exodus 31, I pray, God, that you will help us, Lord, to pursue rest in Jesus. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. After years of watching rising numbers of work-related deaths, the Japanese government has been forced to address the problem. No, these are not deaths caused by machinery mishaps and accidents. They're not chemical plant explosions. People are simply dropping dead at their desk from heart failure, strokes, even suicides. The problem has become so serious that the Japanese people have even coined a phrase for the phenomenon. They call it kuroshi which means death by overwork, Kuroshi. Now, upon investigating the connections between the deaths, the government found that many of the Kuroshi uh, victims were working up to or even exceeding more than 100 hours of overtime work. Now, just to paint the picture, a normal full-time job is 40 hours a week. Kuroshi victims were exceeding that by more than double. It's like working two full-time, full-time jobs. Now at the root of death by overwork lies a restlessness that longs to be put at ease, that longs to be put at rest. Humans were simply not made to work without ceasing. We were made to rest. And though some of us may not feel like we are working ourselves to death at work, there are some of us who are feeling, feel, feeling like we are being overworked to death in our marriages, 
in our relationships, in our friendships, some of us even more dangerously in our justification before God. There are some of us here that are feeling stretched like we are working overtime to make our spouse and the relationship with the spouse work. There are some of us who are feeling overtime to make our self-value and self-importance work. We are just stressed. We are karoshi victims in spiritual, mental, and physical ways. The paradigm of Scripture, however, calls us to something better. It doesn't call us to death by overwork. In fact, God does not call His people to kill themselves by overworking in anything. Instead, as we will see in Exodus 31, God calls His people to enjoy Him, to enjoy Him through both holy work for Him and holy rest with Him. It's a biblical paradigm I don't think modern Christians see all the time. God has called us to enjoy Him through two things, holy work and holy rest. The two things go together. It's a paradigm of a healthy life. God intends His people to work, but not to work for just anything. God intends His people to work for Him. But God doesn't just call His people to work for Him. God calls His people to rest with Him. So today, as we study Exodus 31, we're going to look at five particular things. Number one, we're going to look closely at this biblical paradigm of work and rest, the pattern of working and resting. Number two, we're going to consider the holy work to which we were called. Number three, the holy rest to which we are offered. And number four, we're going to connect how the Sabbath rest spoken of in Exodus 31 connects to Jesus Christ. And then finally, we're going to make some applications for the church today. How does Sabbath rest and holy work connect to modern believers? Now, first, let's look at the paradigm. If you've read Exodus 31 already this week, you notice that there are two sections almost split equally in the middle of the chapter. Um, You have the first section, which speaks explicitly of holy work in verses 1 through 11. And then you get to the next section, which is verses 12 through 17, that speak explicitly of holy rest. The fact that God in Exodus 31 mentions work and then rest is not coincidental. It's not, it's not by accident that work comes before rest. He's intentionally trying to remind us of something. He's trying to draw our minds of an even greater pattern with which creation itself was made. The structure of working for God and resting with God matches what we see all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2. When God himself worked for six days and then rested on the seventh and made it holy. Now, the language of 31 alludes back to God's creational work and rest in many ways. Here are just some of the ways. In Exodus chapter 31, verse 3, it shows that the tabernacle will only be successfully constructed because God will give his spirit to men who will then build it. Where else do we see God's spirit being involved in the creation or construction of anything? It goes all the way back to Genesis 1. Anything made by God is made by God's spirit. God is the creator. He is the creator of his own dwelling place. And so when we read in Exodus 31 that God is going to give his spirit to a person to build this tabernacle, I think our minds are intentionally being drawn back to creation when God did the same thing with Eden. Furthermore, 
In verse 3, it speaks of craftsmanship. That craftsmanship is what is necessary to build the tabernacle. We find that same Hebrew word elsewhere in Genesis chapter 2 when it, spoke, when it speaks about God finishing his craftsmanship, his work, his craftsmanship is done. His artistic design and his artistic molding and creating and carving of the universe is done. My friends, God is a, an artistic God. And the fact that he calls Bezalel to artistic creation of carving and carving into wood and into gold and molding these things and engraving stones, all of that reminds us of the God who does the same thing when he makes the world. And then finally, we have connections with the Sabbath rest. God himself, in verse 17, connects Sabbath rest with the seventh day rest in creation. Now, here's the point. In building the tabernacle, the people are reminded that God was redeeming humanity by restoring holy work and holy rest. Because of the fall, sinful people like us are utterly restless creatures. Can anyone attest to that at all? We are restless creatures in and of ourselves. Unsatisfied, distracted, broken. But it's not just our rest that's broken, it's our work as well. We overdo it for material things. We work too much for the wrong things. And so in building the tabernacle, God is drawing his people into a redeemed work and a redeemed rest. And he's going to offer the same thing to us. The tabernacle is like a miniature world in which mankind is restored to do what it was made to do, to work for God and rest with God. The work-rest pattern that God has made us to live out is life as it should be. It's the life that God intended. So by mere application, if our lives don't have this pattern of working for God and resting with God by nature, and just by sheer logic, we can say that we are not living up to the paradigm God made us to live out. God has called us to this. It is a work that is followed by rest. It is a work for God followed by rest with God. Perhaps stated even better, it is holy work that climaxes in holy rest. Just by sheer illustration, um, so I, I went home from work early on Friday, knew that rain was coming on Saturday. Um, and so I got done mowing for the most part through my yard. I still had some stuff left to do. So Saturday, finish it up a little bit. Next thing you know, here comes the raindrops. There's nothing better, right, than mowing your lawn and then the fill a raindrop spatter right on your forehead. It is work that culminates in rest. Literally, let's put up the mower. It's time to go inside. I'm done. Work is accomplished. Pour the sweet tea and let's enjoy the fireplace on a rainy day. My friends, that's the same kind of feeling, but even better, that God offers us. It's a work that feels accomplished. It's a work that feels meaningful. It's a work that feels done. And it's a work that culminates, climaxes in, has its pure expression in when we rest with God. Okay, so let's look at this first part. Holy work. The first part of the paradigm is that God has called his people to holy work. This seen particularly in the way that he calls Bezalel and Oholiab to the work of tabernacle building. Let's look at verses 1 through 6. The Lord said to Moses, 
See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones or setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Abisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. Now, there are two things in particular that stand out in this verse. Number one, we have the means by which the tabernacle will be made. How will God make his tabernacle? Could be the question. Namely, the tabernacle building requires a person who has been filled with the Spirit of God. The fact that this is the first instance in all of Scripture that a man is that that phrase is used of any man that he is filled with the Spirit of God, and that this is the first time, and it's in connection with tabernacle building, is super significant. It's incredibly significant. How does God build His dwelling place with Spirit-filled people? That's the first. That's the first point that he's making here. It is clear that his dwelling place, his tabernacle, and also alluding to the future temple, and we're going to see here in a moment, to the future church, that God builds his dwelling place by his spirit, and specifically by his spirit-filled people. That's how God builds dwelling places. Second, consider the motive for giving the Spirit. Why? Why, did, why couldn't God just hand it over to them? I mean, is God a bad delegator here? Is God saying, yeah, I'm, I'm giving you these plans, but I'm not going to trust you to build them? Well, no. What's ended up happening here is God's giving them the ability to build the tabernacle according to the exact pattern that he has shown in the heavenly plans. In the, in the divine plans for the tabernacle. He's going to give Bezalel ability and intelligence, knowledge and craftsmanship, so he'll be able to make the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant exactly the way God said it. I mean, these are intricate designs, isn't it? I mean, it's going to take fine work and needlework and craftsmanship is going to be needed to overlay the gold just perfectly. It's going to take the Spirit of God to do that. So by filling a man with the Spirit, God ensured that his dwelling place would be built according to his own design. Now, here's how it connects with us. The truth that God works by the means of his Spirit through his people for the motive of building his dwelling place according to his own design holds holds significance for us. According to the New Testament, God has not changed in his means or motive in building his dwelling place. How he builds his dwelling place and why he goes through those means has not changed. He still builds his dwelling place by spirit-filled people so that his household, the church, will be built according to his design. According to his design. It is not man's labor It is man filled in the Spirit of God that builds the church. And we're built, we're filled with the Spirit of God, not just so that the church can be built, but so that it can be built in God's way. It's His house. He's the architect. He's the designer. And ultimately, He's the builder. It's no coincidence in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 9 that Paul goes so far to call Christians God's building. Literally, God's facility, God's structure, right? We are God's building. 
Ephesians 2 goes on to say that we are being built together into a dwelling place for God. How? By the Spirit. Then you get to Ephesians 4. Paul begins to speak about the gifts that Christ gives. And he speaks of these Spirit-filled men, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, who do what? Well, according to the very next verse, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, listen to this, for building up. Wow, that's an intentional metaphor, don't you think? For building up the body of Christ. So just as Bezalel was filled with the, with God's Spirit so they could lead able men to build the tabernacle, God has given Spirit-filled leaders to His church so that His Spirit-led and Spirit-filled people can go on to build up the church as well. That God's Spirit gave Bezalel ability and intelligence, knowledge, and all craftsmanship anticipates the way that God gives us His Spirit and in turn gives us spiritual gifts. Now, granted, Bezalel is nowhere near filled to this, by the Spirit in the same extent that we are. We are post-Christ's death. We have the Spirit in a way that Bezalel couldn't even dream of. So we have it even better. But still, Bezalel being filled with the Spirit anticipates and foreshadows the way that God will fill His people in the New Testament church to build His dwelling place. It's unlikely that Bezalel had never picked up a hammer. It's unlikely that Bezalel Bezalel had never worked with gold or had never seen someone do needlework. Instead, what we see here is God's Spirit probably taking Bezalel's skills and ability and repurposing them, refurbishing them, uh, re-giving them for the purpose of building up his dwelling place. He's making Bezalel fit for holy work. I think the same is true for us. There are times that God sometimes gives His Spirit, and we are given spiritual gifts that we did not have before we were saved. Like for some of us, we were angry, we were gripey, we were whatever, and next thing you know, we get saved, and then we become super hospitable. That happens sometimes. But also, and and I think more often than not, God takes the gifts and the abilities that we've had in the past that we use for selfish means and refits them to become spiritually beneficial to his people. There's some of us who've had all kinds of wisdom in knowing how to make money, right? All our lives. We know how, we knew how to make money. We could turn a penny into a dollar, right? We just knew how to turn it like that. And then God saves us, gives us his spirit, and takes that ability, and can, now we are able to utilize it for the church. Some people were super zealous about criticizing people. And then God saves them, gives them his spirit, and now they are zealous to encourage. My friends, we all have skills and abilities, don't we? Every single one of us has a skill and ability to do something. But only the Spirit of God can turn our skills and abilities into something that can build up His church. A good speaker will not build up the church. A Spirit-filled preacher will build up the church. A good organizer, a good administrator will not benefit the church at all. But a Spirit-filled man of God 
woman of God who wants to use those administrative gifts to benefit the church, to edify the church, can be used by God to build up his church. God never builds up the church through worldly, fleshly means. God builds up the church through spiritual people. I think that's super helpful for us as a modern church to remember. My friends, it is not hard to grow a church. There are books out there all over the place on it. I can read any blog anytime to learn how to be relevant and how to attract, right? How to get people coming here. But God doesn't build up his people through worldly, fleshly means. He builds up his people. He builds up his church through spiritual people. That's why we make every angst that we possibly can to make sure an elder is dependent on the Spirit, that he knows Jesus and has faith in God and has a healthy walk with God. That's why we make sure that our deacons understand that their work is not just changing light bulbs and making processes and policies and procedures and taking care of the building. Ultimately, it is spiritual work to which we are called. It might have physical manifestations, but it is a spiritual work done by spiritual people. Now, just as a quick little side note here, I think it's also easy to overlook the kind of work that God's Spirit enables His people to do. God says He's going to fill Bezalel with His Spirit. And again, Bezalel is the first man in all the Scripture to have that said. And what is He going to do? Lead an army and conquer Cana? Well, no, that's not what He says He's going to do. What's He going to do? Is He going to uh, help serve all the people in such a way that all their problems are over? Is he all of a sudden the big cafeteria guy that finally solves this food problem? Well, no. God gives him his spirit so that he knows how to wield a hammer right. God gives him his spirit so that he knows how to work the needle into the fabric. I mean, I I just imagine if we were there watching Bezalel work, we're watching this nasty, sweaty, grimy, Ugly looking dude, probably got a beard like Brandon's. (laughs) Got dirt on his face, hammering away. It's an inglorious work. Sweaty, hot, nasty. And yet it's the work of the Spirit. It's easy sometimes to see God's Spirit working behind the pulpit. It's easy sometimes to see God's Spirit working through the worship pastor. But sometimes we overlook the way God's Spirit's working in the greeters or the volunteers in the children's ministry or the ladies who watch in the nursery or the people who come and help make the coffee. My friends, we overlook that. Again, God does spiritual things through spiritual people. He builds up his spiritual body through spiritual people. There is no task that is done for the church that is not done ultimately because God's spirit is given to it, to to a person. I've heard so many people say, I am just not fit to work in the children's ministry. I am just not fit to serve. My friends, you may not be, but that's what the spirit does. The Spirit refits us. The Spirit repurposes us. The Spirit makes us capable and competent to be able to serve His body. God calls everyone to this task. 
God calls everyone to contribute into work because it is not just pastors, it's not just elders, not just uh, uh, evangelists that are building up the body of Christ. Those people equip the body to build themselves up in love. Next week, we're going to have a, a ministry fair. And there's going to be all kinds of needs and job descriptions out there that we are asking our volunteers to meet. We have all kinds of needs in the church. We need competent, qualified people to serve in the children's ministry. We need competent, qualified people to come and serve on the worship team. We need competent, qualified people to serve in the sound booth and in the AV and people who will be willing to come and meet real needs in the church as an act of love, but not if people think that they can do it in their own way and in their own spirit. It has to be done in dependence on the Spirit of God. And so I'm asking you, please do not overestimate what God's Spirit wants to do through you. God may be filling you to serve tables just like he did with the men of Acts. Acts 6, they're looking for the first deacon-like men. And guess what the first on the qualification? They got to be men who are full of the Spirit. What are they going to do? Serve tables. Even serving, ta- serving tables in the household of God cannot be done unless a person's spirit-filled. Otherwise, it's not truly serving the church at all. It might be serving tables, but for it to be a spiritual endeavor that's wanting to accomplish spiritual goals, it must be done by people full of the Spirit. So, that's the first part of the paradigm. Now we get to the second. In addition to calling his people to holy work, God also calls his people to holy rest. God instructs Moses in the next few verses, in verses 13 through 17, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh He rested and was refreshed. Now, the words above all express the importance of the Sabbath. Tabernacle work is super important. This is even more important. Isn't that interesting? He uses those words above all, elevating it up over even the holy work. God does not want Israel to miss the gravity of keeping holy rest. In verse 15, God lays out the pattern of life in Israel. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest holy to the Lord. Literally, that phrase, a Sabbath of solemn rest, means a Sabbath of restful rest. What do you think the emphasis is? Rest. (laughs) A most restful rest. But what are Israelites doing on the Sabbath? I mean, are they catching up on their favorite scores? trying to take bets on who's going to win Texas Tech or Virginia, putting up hammocks in the backyard. What exactly are they doing on the Sabbath day? 
Well, here's what it says. It has two primary purposes. First, keeping the Sabbath reminded the people that this particular day belonged to God. Notice how in verse 13, God tells Moses that the people are to keep whose Sabbaths? My Sabbaths. Not their Sabbaths. Tell them to keep their Sabbaths. No, to keep my Sabbaths. Sabbath is the Lord's day, and therefore it was to be a day dedicated to Him alone. It is holy to the Lord, set aside for His purposes. This means that the first and primary purpose of the Sabbath day was that it was to be a day explicitly, singularly given to God and to no one else. Now granted, every day is that way, right? But on the Sabbath day, the primary focus is to rest with God. Second, Sabbath was important because of what it signified. In this passage, God says that the Sabbath serves as two signs that call to mind specific truths. Signs in the Bible are always given for the purpose of reminding us of something, right? You might think of the rainbow. When God puts up the rainbow, we're reminded of his promise that he'll never again flood the earth. So signs work to remind Israel of these very important truths. So what's the first sign? In verse 13, God says that the Sabbath is a sign that reminds Israel that Yahweh is the one who sanctifies them. Literally, he is the one who makes them holy. What in the world does that mean? I think it goes all the way back to Exodus from Egypt. Remember, Israel is called to be a what? A holy nation, right? How do they become a holy nation? It's only because God has redeemed them out of Egypt and brought them to himself that they now have suddenly become holy. It is God, their Redeemer, who makes them holy. So the first point of keeping the Sabbath for Israel is that they will remember that God is their Redeemer. But there's a second one. In verse 17, God adds that the Sabbath is a sign forever, that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. That's an entirely different sign. What does that signify? God is not just their Redeemer, he's also their Creator. Now on the Sabbath day, this is what's happening. Israelites are waking up. They're not giving themselves the business. They're not giving themselves the meetings. They're not giving themselves the work. They're taking time to remember that God is Redeemer and Creator. Specifically, that He created them for rest and redeemed them for rest. My friends, do you see that about God? You go all the way back to Genesis 1. The highlight of everything is God rested. He enjoyed His creation. And God envelops creation with the enjoyment of a relationship with God. God created us for rest with God, but because of the fall, we've been separated from God. Therefore, God must also redeem us for rest. We have been created for rest. We have been redeemed for rest. That's what the Sabbath signifies. Now, because of its deep significance... God gives multiple warnings of the severe punishment for those who neglect the Sabbath. In verse 14, he says that whoever profanes it, whoever breaks it, shall be put to death. And if that wasn't bad enough, he adds, whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. So it's a double punishment. Interestingly, if you look up through the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, where else you find that coupling of punishment? Put to death, cut off from your people, you find it in one violation. 
Specifically in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 2 through 3, God says that if any Israelite sacrifices their children to the idol Molech, that they are to be put to death and to be cut off from their people. Now that's interesting. Why, why would, that's, that's, that's bizarre, right? That, that seems like saying if you break the speeding limit, you get the same punishment as a mass murder. So why would God couple those punishments together, showing that Sabbath breaking is on par with sacrificing your kids? This is like the deepest, darkest depths of idol worship. Remember what Sabbath was for. The Sabbath was to remember, to be reminded that God is Redeemer and Creator. A person who breaks the Sabbath is inevitably going to be led into the deepest dark depths of idolatry. Sabbath breaking will inevitably lead to idol making. When a person fails to remember that God is Redeemer and God's Creator, you better watch out because the next thing coming is a big old idol right in the middle of their heart. Sabbath keeping protects the space reserved for God alone in our hearts. Sabbath keeping guards our most central part so that we don't allow idols to creep in. God says it explicitly. If they start breaking the Sabbath, they will forget God. And when they forget God, they will turn to idols. And when they turn to idols, they will forsake God completely. Verse 8 signals a conclusion in this section. We've been in this whole law section and tabernacle planning section for a long time, and it concludes with this, that God gives Moses the tablets of testimony. That's the tablets with the Ten Commandments on it, written with the finger of God. Now, having given the laws and the tabernacle plans, Israel's now ready to begin their relationship with God. They're ready to begin this paradigm and pattern of holy work and holy rest. And yet, as we'll see in the very next chapter next week, Israel breaks the covenant before, just as it even begins, just a few days after it's been ratified. The rest of the Old Testament, if you read the, the Old Testament prophets, one of the consistent indictments against Israel is that they broke the Sabbath. They forgot their God and they broke the Sabbath. They not only failed to do the holy work God had called them to do, but they also rejected the holy rest he offered them. Instead, they worked for themselves, for their money, for their own gods. They literally worked themselves into exile and death, true Kiroshi style, dropping dead because of their own idolatry. And as a consequence of their unbelief in God, their creator and redeemer, they, were, they failed to enter into true rest with God. They didn't attain it. All this to show what? You and I, as natural humanity, as sinners from birth, are unable to attain rest on our own. I said it before, creature, humans are utterly restless people. We're dissatisfied people. We're people who are worn out. And we are so naturally because we're sinners and we're separated from the one who brings us rest. God would be completely just to leave us in this way. Can you imagine feeling for all eternity this idea of you can't rest, there's no, there's no relief, no refreshment, no catching of your breath, no enjoyment with God. But as it is, 
God in his grace sent his only son to tabernacle among us and to bring rest to those who are weary. In Matthew 11, just before Jesus declared himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath, it's a very interesting title to give himself. He declares himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath, and then he says this when he preaches to the crowds. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus fulfilled God's offer of Sabbath rest. Now, the, the author of Hebrews picks up on this powerfully and, and spends two full chapters talking about how God has offered rest to believers, to those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. He says in chapter 4, verse 3, that those who have believed enter true Sabbath rest. Those who have believed enter true Sabbath rest, while those who do not believe in Jesus fail to enter into rest altogether. Resting in God's presence is fulfilled and accomplished only as we trust in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and Creator. Jesus restores this enjoyment, this rest with God that we were created for in Genesis 1 and 2. He reconciles the relationship. He bridges the gap so that now we can enter into a Sabbath rest with God. This is profound about the gospel. The Lord of the Sabbath died for Sabbath breakers like you and me. I don't mean Sabbath breakers in that we haven't always gone to church on Sunday. I'm talking about Sabbath breakers who have rejected the rest that God has offered. Who have held on to our idols. And held on to our gods, which wear us out. And the Lord of the Sabbath died for that kind of Sabbath breaking. He was buried, and he rose again. And he now, now offers us a redeemed eternal rest in him. My friends, let me ask you, are you weary? Just in the moment, in the, in the transparency, and the quietness of your own heart, I want you to ask yourselves, are you weary? Are you tired? Are you heavy laden? Do you feel overworked and worn out? My friends, that is not just a physical component. It is not just because of physical unrest. Weariness, restlessness, Heavy ladenness is ultimately a spiritual problem that only Jesus can solve. Which is why Jesus has come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My friends, if you're weary, don't treat Jesus as just a metaphorical solution. He's not just someone, oh, yeah, 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 I know I need to pray more. No. You come to Jesus to find rest in a real way. Knowing that he is the Lord who has died for your sins and who has secured eternal life in Jesus. 
Whatever you're going through, whatever it is that you may be facing, he has died to bring you rest now, not just later, now, to rest in the fact that Jesus is the sovereign creator, sovereign redeemer. He has solved our ultimate problem by dying for our sins, and now he stands as a comforter, as the resurrected Lord for all eternity, brings us rest. About a year and a half ago, I um, heard words from the doctor that I thought my wife was, I, he told me my wife was dying. You guys have heard me talk about the story before about this brain aneurysm and, um, that, that we thought that Rachel had. And both Kyle and Adam and Larry, I believe, was there. Um, and they were there to see the most restless side of me. I mean, you talk about seeing your pastor needing to be picked up off the floor almost. Broken. I was being beat out, worn out, flat, smoothed out across the surface by all kinds of fears. I'm a pastor. I'm perpetually tired as it is. I have three kids. And the thought came across, I'm going to be raising these three kids on my own and dealing with my own grief. And it was because of brothers who were there to pray. And they didn't pray what I thought they would pray. I thought they would pray that, they would, that God would make me stronger, that God would make me braver, that God would make me mightier in my faith. Now, all of my brothers that prayed with me that night prayed for rest. Stillness inside of me. I kept thinking about Psalm 23. Green pastures, still waters. I mean, in this moment, in my heart, when I'm thinking about burying my wife, the floodwaters are just gushing in and stormwaters just raking me across the walls in this hospital room. And then the prayers for still waters. The Lord of the Sabbath brings Sabbath rest even in moments like that. I can guarantee I didn't rest perfectly. I even fought right. It felt better to be angry. It fought better to be upset. It felt better to be upset. There's some kind of inward satisfaction in myself just to be upset that this is happening. But yet, Jesus comes in and speaks a better word and gives a better rest. And he silences our restless heart. My friends, know what you have in the gospel. Know what you have in the gospel. There are some of you in here today that are going through things you could barely describe. There are some of you in here today who have not slept for weeks. And when you do sleep, it's filled with nightmares and it's filled with bad dreams and it's tossing and turning. You wake up sore and worried about your body and worried about what's going to happen. Your mind's constantly turning about your future. Is this the way it's always going to be? There may be some of you here that are actually contemplating suicide because you think that might be the only way you will find rest. Listen to the still calm voice of the Savior. He doesn't shout at us. 
Find rest in me. No, he whispers in a still, small voice. Come to me, you who are weak, weary, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus became restless on the cross so that you could enjoy rest now in him. Don't neglect the gospel. Finally, what does this have to do with our church today? Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath, right? We've just established that. He brought Sabbath rest, but he never annulled it. He never made it invalid anymore. The author of Hebrews says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest, For the people of God, whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And here's what he says. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So there's kind of a now and not yet to this Sabbath rest, right? We have entered already and we continue to enter present tense into Sabbath rest. But then we strive to enter into the rest that remains. We know that we have rest now in Jesus, but we also know that there is a day that that rest will be made perfect and full and never, never ending. It'll be a rest to be felt. It'll be a most restful rest in the Sabbath of Jesus. So how do we do it now? You know, some people argue that Sunday has become the new Sabbath, and I'm going to rain on a lot of parades here on this. I do believe Sunday is the Lord's Day. I do not believe that, the, the, that Sunday is the Sabbath day. But for those of you that are like, yes, for all those people who have ever told me that I missed out on the Sabbath and broke the Sabbath, there you go. I'm coming back to you. Is Sunday the Sabbath day? Well, there's no scriptural evidence at all that God has moved the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week, that the Sabbath is now on Sunday. But there's all kinds of evidence that God has opened up Sabbath rest every day of the week to us. Here's the danger of thinking that Sunday, that this time alone, is our Sabbath. There are all kinds of people who come to church faithfully every Sunday and are no closer to rest than when they first walked into the front door of the church building. I mean, I'm, I'm, I see it. It's my job to see it. I see their faces coming in. I see their faces going out. I see them sleep through the sermon. <laughs> I see them enter in and I, and I hear the same things and they're no more rested than they were when they first came in. So if, if you think that you're accomplishing Sabbath rest by checking it off the box, I'm here today, this is not the Sabbath day, you're not accomplishing Sabbath rest just by being here. Now remember, Sabbath rest is fulfilled by trusting in Jesus Christ. Specifically remembering and reminding ourselves that God is, that Jesus is our Redeemer and our Creator. So therefore, the Sabbath is whenever we are trusting in Jesus as our Redeemer and Creator. So on Sundays, this is the day that we have all said that we want to commit to reminding ourselves and remembering that Jesus is Redeemer and Creator, right? So in a sense, we are Sabbathing together. But we also do it in other ways. We Sabbath in the little moments of life. When we choose to trust Jesus instead of being anxious about our job and our bank account or our health, we're Sabbathing in Jesus. When we turn from temptation and sin to cling to Jesus, 
turning from pornography addictions, turning from drug addictions. We are clinging to the Sabbath in Jesus. When we thank God for all the things that we have and we smile when we see our children run by and we think, God, thank you for my kids. We are Sabbathing in Jesus. When we join together and we sing about our Redeemer and our Creator and we hear the Creator's words, we are Sabbathing in Jesus. Whatever we do that is an expression of our faith in Jesus, the Redeemer and Creator, and is mindful of the redemptive rest that He brings through His life, His death, and His resurrection, is ultimately Sabbath-keeping. My friends, you shouldn't want to be here today because today's a Sabbath day. You should want to be here because this is one way that you participate in Sabbath rest. We were made and redeemed to enjoy rest with God and God's people. You hear the paradigm in Hebrews 4. Let us therefore strive. Let us make every effort. Let us work hard to do what? To enter into rest. Work, rest, work hard, rest hard, work hard. Don't work for your own idols. Don't work for your own reputation. Don't work for your own self-importance. Work for the glory of God and rest with God's people. My friends, we share the gospel together. We break bread in each other's homes. We join together in prayers. We hug. Hugging is great. We shake hands. We say welcome. We sit beside each other and we sing. We receive spiritual bread together. My friends, this is Sabbath rest. Let us as a church build God's dwelling place by working hard and resting with God's people. Your work for the Lord in the church will inevitably lead to rest with God's people. If it doesn't, It's not true holy work for God's church. Now we say all this because we have a shepherd who is leading us to rest in green pastures and beside still waters. A shepherd who restores our souls. We say this because the Lord of the Sabbath will one day return and establish Sabbath rest, which we right now are just merely tasting. We're sipping of it. But when he comes, we'll get to gulp deeply of it. The Sabbath for which God created you and created the whole world will be accomplished in an eternal reality. And we will serve the Lord, the Lord alone, not for reputations, not for other people, not for self-importance, not for career and accolades and all these things. We'll serve for the Lord alone. We will put at rest and we will rest in the house of the Lord forever. Welcome to Sabbath rest in Jesus. It doesn't begin later. It begins now as you trust in the Redeemer and Creator. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth of Exodus 31. We pray, Lord, that you help us to be more faithful to work and rest. Lord, may we go about the holy work of building up your church and working for you, but may we also rest with you, God. Please help us. Lord, if there's anyone here that is restless and in need of rest, I pray, Lord, that they will seek that in you and with your people. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.